Welcome to this episode of About the Adventure podcast, featuring an interview with Andy Darnton, who shares some of his career change story. He talks about why he put his career as a commercial lawyer behind him and how self-employment has given him time to qualify as a mountain leader. We recorded while sitting on the eastern edge of Kinderscout in the Peak District, surrounded by hills, sheep and buzzing bees. Get the kettle on and settle in. So Andy, can you start by describing what you were going through when you started to think about a change in direction? Yeah, sure. It, it's a really good question, this one, because I don't think there was a time when I was never not thinking about a change of direction, which sounds quite a strange thing to say, because my background in terms of my career is as a commercial lawyer. And that's not something you kind of decide to do overnight, is it? You know, it, it takes a lot of commitment in terms of study and, uh, and there's lots of different stages to it. But I guess, you know, from day one, I almost knew it wasn't quite right for me. So perhaps that needs a bit more explanation. I think I was very lucky in that, you know, at school I, I was good at passing exams. I was, I was academic, you know, I got good grades. And it kind of comes to the time when you're thinking, right, you know, what am I going to do? And, you know, who knows what they want to do when they're 17 or 18 years old? And because I was getting, you know, good grades, it was kind of logical career progression from there. It's kind of, right, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And I was lucky in that I had some very supportive teachers who encouraged me to apply to Cambridge University to study law, which I did. Um, and I was very lucky to, to win a place there. And had a fantastic three years at university. And I think it's very much living in a bubble place like Cambridge in that you're surrounded by lots of very intelligent people. There's lots of very inspiring people who've gone on to do some quite impressive things. And it's quite easy to get kind of wrapped up in all of that. So, of course, that's what happened. You know, I, I kind of got through my studies and was lucky enough to secure a training contract at a, a large international law firm. Uh, got through that um, and then I got to kind of qualifying as a solicitor six years later um, and it was right as the recession was hitting and me being me I decided to kind of want to specialise in an area that there was just literally no work at the time of recession which was commercial property so I did manage to secure a job at another firm it was a very well respected regional firm and I remember kind of sitting there on the first day at my desk in my kind of suit thinking right I've made it now I'm a solicitor I've done it this is what I've been working towards and I remember that kind of feeling of you know um, success and achievement lasted for about two days and then the reality set in it's like I'm gonna minute I've got to do this now for the next 40 plus years and I think that was when I started to kind of get a bit more frightened about the, the prospect and it is a real baptism of fire. It's a bit like, you know, when you kind of pass your driving test and all of a sudden you've kind of not got the security of an instructor there anymore and you're kind of having to make decisions on your own. And people always used to say to me, look, the first two years are the worst. If you can get through the first two years, you know, you'll be absolutely fine. So it's like brilliant, right? Head down. And it was, you know, it was really difficult. It's a, it's a steep learning curve, uh, lots of pressure, um, lots of stress in terms of targets and, and having to think about you know complex solutions and demands of you know the modern business world. I remember kind of you know two years later I kind of wake up on that on that that morning right it's two years now it's brilliant it's all going to get better from here. 
and kind of went into work and, and it wasn't it was exactly the same and people then said oh if you can make it to four years then it starts to get better you know you, you, you'll know a bit more then and you'll you'll feel more confident you'll have lots of contacts and um, you know you'd be a bit more senior so right okay so head down so kind of kept going to four years and then you know, got to four years and you know what it gets a lot better if you can get to six and I just hang on a minute this isn't really getting any better um and I think deep down I knew it, it wasn't going to but like a lot of people when you've put so much effort into getting somewhere and you know made lots of sacrifices and worked hard you just kind of feel that's that's your only option and you're almost being ungrateful for for not wanting to pursue that so I did what a lot of people do in that situation and kind of tried out different organizations you know I moved off the grass will be greener it's the firm and there probably wasn't anything wrong with the firms I was working for but tried, you know, a slightly smaller organisation that didn't quite work out. I then ended up at a, quite a nice little practice, which, you know, lovely people, quite nice work. Um, but I got to the point in my career where the next kind of milestone was was partnership. And it was right. OK, you know, that that's the next logical step. Really, you can, you know, can you kind of work a little bit harder to to make partner? And I remember that almost felt like the last chance that I had to either stick at it or or get out and I think you know at the time I didn't realize this and it was really because you know you often kind of fantasize don't you about what else you might have done but I just couldn't think of anything I had no idea what else I wanted to do or could have done so but as that kind of you know that that, that level of seniority came and you know partnership beckoned I started to get more and more panicky about being being trapped in and that feeling of well what happens if I do get offered partnership how will I feel and in all honesty I just felt quite numb about it I couldn't get excited and that to me was the catalyst for right this isn't right something needs to change and when you said that you were sort of waiting for things to get better what did better actually mean to you it's interesting I don't think I ever thought what it means to me in hindsight, I know this. I thought it was better in terms of what other people told me I should be expecting. So whether that be more money, you know, get a, get a nice pay rise um, or get more responsibility or get to work on more exciting jobs or get to travel more to different places around the country. And all of these things that people told me were things that were more exciting and were... were um, were things that I should be aspiring towards. I kind of nodded along, but I, you know, deep down, subconsciously, I was thinking that 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 doesn't excite me. I'm not motivated by those things at all. So I think I was really looking for something better in terms of what society deemed was better for me, not what I thought was better for me. And I was too ignorant, really, to or too naive, I guess, to really think about what it was that. I wanted what my values were and what motivated me and when you were sat at your desk let's say or when you were attending some of the conferences that you and I were talking about today when we were walking and you were talking about like cold coffee and or cold bacon sandwiches and wheat, <laughs> wheat, wheat coffee, coffee. <laughs> when you were going to these sorts of events and sitting at your desk what was going through your mind when you were starting to think about making a change? I'll add to that as well. I think there was never a time when I wasn't at work. 
So you say, you know, when you're at these events, when you're at your desk. But actually, it was when I was at home. It was when I was on holiday. It was when I was out for a meal with my wife. There was never a time when I wasn't thinking about what was on my desk. Uh, the next thing I had to do, the complicated bit of drafting I had to do, the, the deadline that was coming up, you know, my targets that I hadn't quite met for that month. Um, it was all consuming. And it was a bit like being on a treadmill, I guess, and setting the treadmill to just a little bit faster than you can comfortably jog. So you can, you know, let's say, 10% more than what you could do. And obviously that, you know, that's not sustainable, is it? There comes a point where it's just, I just need a break. I just need five minutes off. But I was never getting that five minutes off. It was always, no, 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 keep going, keep going at that, that pace. And I just felt myself kind of spiraling down. And the thing is, you know, you take a little holiday, you take a week off or you get a fortnight in the summer or whatever. And I found myself living for those, those kind of precious few moments when, quite frankly, I'd still be worrying about what was on my desk. And the effort involved to go on holiday or have a long weekend away um, or even just an afternoon off, you would have to invest so much time in getting things up to speed or on handing, th handing things over to colleagues and updating clients and, and, uh, and other professionals that you're working with that you then had to come back and almost work 120% to catch up on what you'd missed out. So it almost became easier not to take a break. So you were still then on that treadmill, which just kind of got ever more and more relentless. But to kind of be a bit more specific about you know what was going through my mind... Um, um, when, you know, I did have time to kind of think for myself. It was, you know, what else can I do? I had no idea what else I wanted to do. You know, I've only ever known the law. That's what I've been trained in. Uh, I've come straight through school, university, and then got, you know, got a job. And I don't, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But it was really kind of, you know, there is nothing else I can think of what I want to do. And that's an important thing, which I think we'll probably come back to and explore later on. Um, but I also felt quite self-conscious about what will people think what will people think if i give this up you know or do something else they'll think i'm ungrateful they think i'm uh, i've just given up too easily you know uh, that i'm not working hard enough that i'm not committed so that that played on my mind quite a lot um but also there was a bit of a feeling that i might be going backwards which sounds really kind of snooty thing to say doesn't it but there is the kind of a bit of a prestige that goes with the role and um, there's a big identity around it. And I think I kind of bought into that um, a bit too much, really. And I think I felt, oh, people won't respect me if I'm no longer doing what I set out to do and I don't have this fancy, fancy title. Um, there is this kind of perception in society, isn't it, that you've, you've always got to, what's the next thing? You know, somebody climbs a mountain. It's like, all right, well, what's next? You know, and actually it's like, well, I might just want to chill out for a little bit. And I think really when you were, asking me what what was I thinking about and what was motivating me it was like how can I get more time how can I get more time to do the things that I loved doing that make me me that I no longer get a chance to do and how did you begin to explore and find the answers to those questions so I did the thing that like only a lawyer would do and like built this really pedantic spreadsheet <laughs> It was like, oh, you should have seen. It was a thing of beauty, Sarah. This thing, 
I remember one day I was sitting at my desk and the phone was ringing, like the little red light was flashing and, you know, with voicemails. I had emails kind of going ping, 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 coming into my inbox. I had reception calling me saying, you know, a client had turned up in reception. I had the other side on, you know, 50 different matters chasing me. I had a great big comp. You get the idea. Loads of things. I was just drowning in work and I thought I can't keep all of this in my head. So what I did was kind of shut my door and built a spreadsheet. And this thing was brilliant. It kind of automatically organized um, my day. It told me the priority of things that needed doing just with the click of a button. It told me where different things were. So was it with me? Was it waiting for somebody else? Was it waiting for a colleague? Was it waiting for a client? It told me how much I was going to bill each month. Um, So management loved it because I could quite accurately say, oh, yeah, it's going to be this. And this thing really helped me because it was like taking lots of things out of my brain, dumping it in this system and just helping me kind of get through my day and and work through my kind of ever increasing to do list. And it got me thinking, you know, it was this real light bulb moment. I thought, hang on a minute, if I can build this in an afternoon or day or whatever it took me, there must be some really whizzy systems out there that kind of do this. You know, there must be cleverer people out there than me that have already built systems like this. It turns out there, there was. There was a, a huge movement um, around kind of legal technology and helping lawyers, professionals become more efficient. And by chance, I think I'd seen a LinkedIn post with somebody I used to work with who was actually doing something quite similar. And I met him for a coffee. We got chatting and, you know, he needed some help kind of getting his business started. So was, you know, prepared to kind of subcontract some work out to me. And that was really how I started to kind of think, you know what? Yeah, there is something more that I can do using my skills. And I think, as I say, I tried the option of moving companies before, but doing the same thing. And while there's a honeymoon period and while you quite enjoy it at the start, you soon realize it's largely the same just a different four walls isn't it so really that was what helped me organize my thoughts and I think as I said I got to that point in my career it's like look it's now or never I either take the plunge or kind of stick at it there's a really good analogy that I kind of keep coming back to and I've got I've got a massive man crush on Alistair Humphreys as I think I've said to you before Sarah and like anything that comes out of Alistair's mouth I I kind of treat as kind of as, as the gospel I think it's brilliant and, you know, I could talk for hours about Mr. Humphrey's teachings. But there's one thing. This probably wasn't even him that said this, but like anything good, I tend to attribute to him now. <laughs> um, but this was one about, you know, everybody at some point or another will come to that kind of big crossroads in life. And it's normally around about your early 30s or whatever, where you kind of get to this this junction. And it's like, right, I can either go left. And if I go left, that's continuing on the same path um, that I'm already on. You know, I'll probably have a nice life and you know get a nice pension and can retire and you know and it'll all be great um or i can turn right and do something completely different but it's actually more what i want to do and i think what alistair said or maybe didn't say but the the question you need to ask yourself is you need to flip a coin and if it lands on heads you're going to go left and continue on the same path if it lands on tails you're going to go right and do something a little bit different that's more uh, more your your kind of thing and what you've got to ask yourself is would you be disappointed with the result so if it lands on heads and you have to go left would you go all right fair enough the coin doesn't lie i'll stick at it or are you going to go oh now i'm a bit disappointed with that i really wanted tails equally it could work the other way around and that to me was what would happened i flipped that coin and i would have been really annoyed if it had landed on heads and told me to stick at what i was doing so that to me was 
the the kind of the, the kick I needed really to to do something different. And did you actually use the coin? No. <laughs> I did in my head. I kind of you know this. I've got this like image now. Although perhaps it's a false memory of this like slow motion coin kind of spinning and then you know like me kind of peering over with you know with one eye. And thinking, what is it? What is it? Um, but I think you know you know then don't yeah, you? Yeah, you didn't need it. I'd made the decision and. I almost needed somebody else to tell me, you know, yeah, go for it. But then it's like, but go for what? Because I hadn't grown up wanting to be or wanting to work in legal technology. Um, I didn't even know it existed. Um, It turns out it was a relatively niche area. Um, There weren't many people doing it. Um, but it was really kind of made for me. It was, um, you know, a massive geek. I love kind of tinkering around with systems. Uh, I loved the idea also of being able to kind of support lawyers and other professionals who, again, perhaps felt a bit like me, a bit overwhelmed by uh, all the stress and the always-on culture and and burnout Um, and wanted to kind of make their lives a bit easier. And that's really what this technology does. It kind of automates processes. I get to kind of tinker with computers and kind of find solutions using a limited set of tools to kind of get, you know, make processes more efficient. So I did really, really enjoy it. And I think, yes, I didn't flip the coin. What I did do though was we talked about, you know, sitting at your desk, how did you find the the space to organise your thoughts? I started riding my bike again. I think I've said to you, Sarah, before that, you know, I bought myself a Brompton folding bicycle and I used to park just outside the city and then like ride the last few miles on my bike. And that was amazing. I mean, I felt like a 10 year old boy kind of with my little bike, you know, whizzing around. And it was became the part of my day that I really, really enjoyed because I was able to organize my thoughts. And I think it's getting that headspace that's so important when you're looking to make a decision, uh, but don't quite know what the answer is yeah I think the the tendency can be to want to find what the other thing is and to still spend a lot of time at your desk and be researching and networking or whatever it is you know asking people questions but actually I think sometimes that break away back to find out who you are what you enjoy bring out that playfulness of you know going out on your bike or whatever it is it's like that I, even though it doesn't seem like it maybe helps directly I think it's a sort of indirect influence and then it may take you down a different path because you you start to engage with that side of yourself again that maybe you you lost for a while because you had you know your head in work and I I know that I certainly lost my love of well, I didn't lose it, but it felt like I did. I felt like I'd lost that part of myself. I hadn't even realised it until I just went out for a walk one day, a local walk, and I was curious and I felt a sense of relief and I wasn't thinking about work. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is what life is, what, what I think life is about. You know, it's about discovery and adventure and even these little tiny adventures, you know, like Alistair Humphreys talks about, micro-adventures, doesn't have to be anything really complicated but I think sometimes it it can be tempting to look at what's the next like exact answer of what I'm going to do next it's like you this pressure to have to know when sometimes we just don't know (laughs) that point really resonates with me and um, again to quote Mr Humphreys he uses a phrase which I think is great which is um, ready fire aim 
And there is this kind of tendency, isn't there, to kind of write, I'm going to get ready to make a decision. Then I'm going to get things absolutely perfect. So I'm going to decide exactly what it is I'm going to do before I press the trigger, before I go for it. And actually what you need to do sometimes is decide that you're ready, go for it, and then kind of refine your approach. And I think that was really what I did in terms of my legal technology journey. So this is a bit of a reference to your blog, which is highs and lows. <laughs> what have been the highs and lows for you so far since you resigned? See what you did there. It's the gift that keeps on giving this uh, this name, <laughs> isn't it? Okay, so highs, yeah. I think moving away from em- being employed to being self-employed was was really kind of fits in with my 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 style my my work ethic um you know the way that i feel most productive so being more in control of my day being able to decide the jobs that i took on when and where i worked was really empowering and quite freeing i think perhaps working in that kind of stressful open plan office environment i found really stressful i'm very perceptive to kind of outside noises there's an aeroplane or a helicopter going by now and it's really distracting me um so right on cue but you know white noise people on the telephone i get you know i find that quite hard then to concentrate so having my own space being able to work you know i hated that kind of culture of you know jackets on backs of chairs type thing and you know, get to five o'clock and it's like well why are we staying oh well because everybody else stays and i'm thinking nobody wants to be here we all want to go home of course we do but there was this kind of perception that you had to be there, presenteeism, and, and I hated that. There were some afternoons where you're just not being productive. You know that. And if I could have just gone out for a walk around the block, I probably could have come back and done some really good work. But that was really frowned upon. You know, you couldn't rock up at ten past nine because you just wanted to have a little run down the canal. And that, to me, really bothered me. And, you know, there'd be some days... Um, where you know once i kind of got self-employed where i'd be in the zone i found my flat and i'd work for for hours well into the night you know get up early the next day and i'd just be all over it there'd be other times where it just wasn't happening and for me that was really really empowering and kind of made me fall in love with with work i didn't resent having to work so that was a good thing so just to interrupt for a Mm. second do you think that the culture this culture of work that you're talking about, do you think that it can change and do you think that it will change? Yes, I think it can. I think what we've seen with the the pandemic, and it was only a matter of time before we mentioned COVID, is that it can work and, you know, um, people can work from home. There was a real um, reluctance to allow people to work at home. You know, oh, I've got a dentist appointment. Can I work from home this morning? Mm, no, sorry, I don't think that's going to work out. And actually... You know, the world proved that that could happen. And I think it's it's challenging that status quo, isn't it? You know, to use cliches. Um, and so I think, yes, there is more of a um, more of a desire, perhaps from, you know, successive generations that come through from younger generations to have a bit more of a work life balance. You know, young people aren't averse to hard work. Far from it. Um but sitting in the same place, pretending to work is not work. And I think people are just more, people have realised that because they're going to have to work, you know, well into the 70s, um, it's a long period, um, you know, really long careers. People are demanding more. 
And I think employers need to be alive to that. They need to be offering that. People aren't motivated by the same things anymore. Um, you know, we have a diverse population and everybody has different needs and wants and things that motivate them and success and different definitions of success. So to me, yes, it can change. Will it change? It's a more difficult question, isn't it? Particularly in law firms, because it, it's just it seems like a standard thing to put a lot of pressure on people. And law firms are very funny. They're they're a very um, traditional. Um, it's a very traditional industry. You know, quite rightly so. Very important decisions are being made. It needs to be rigid for for a reason. And our laws have evolved to kind of protect us over time. You know, that that's absolutely fine. And that was why the legal tech movement was so interesting because it was kind of this not rebellious. Rebellious is the wrong word because that kind of implies anarchy and things. It wasn't. We were all kind of geeks. In fact, there's a there's a big conference that takes place called Legal Geek, which is all about kind of geeky lawyers who wanted to kind of look at all these whizzy bits of technology and things and um, uh, in terms of how it could improve working practices um, for the, you know, for the profession and the um, the discipline that we love. So, yeah, it, it wasn't about anarchy, but I do think there is a reluctance to change and that's in any sector. But yes, particularly, you know, the older professions, there is a reluctance to change if it's always kind of worked in a particular way. Why would we change it? And I'm not I'm not here to kind of advocate change for change's sake. Um, far from it. But I think if you can clearly see that a process is broken, don't do it the same way every time. You know, think about how would we make it better. It does. It does seem quite stale to me. And I definitely used to have those same lines of thinking. You know, why am I sat here if I'm not really being particularly productive, or I've already done all the work that I was set, and I haven't been given permission to do any other work it was just this expectation to just sit there and I just couldn't understand it but I also felt afraid to question it because I was worried that I'd get fired or you know badly treated because I was questioning authority and it's that kind of back to school feeling and that's what I didn't want in the workplace I didn't want to feel like I was at school anymore and I felt like I was back at primary school. I think that's it you know you've hit the nail on the head in terms of that Feeling when you first start out, it does feel like you've gone back to school. But then you get to a level of seniority where it's like, right, I need to keep my mouth shut now because I'm about to kind of join management. And if I kind of make a, a fuss, they might think, oh, this guy's just a troublemaker. And then you make it and you join the club and you think, ah, right, well, I'll just, it's only 20 years till retirement now. I'll just, <laughs> and it is this like really weird cycle that happens, isn't it? Like everybody's thinking the same thing. Or I'm sure they are, but nobody wants to question or challenge it, even if it's going to make our lives slightly better. I'm conscious I'm not answering your question because you, you just asked me about highs and lows, didn't you? And I think we've, you know, I, I, I love that flexibility, which is kind of where this conversation stemmed from. And people have this kind of rosy view, don't they, of being self-employed and sitting by the swimming pool with your laptop on your knee. And actually, the reality is not like that at all, as you know, Sarah. You know, there are some days where it's like, I've not got any work this month or, you know, this bill hasn't been paid. And that's quite scary. Adjusting from that kind of having lots of work land on your desk, whether you liked it or not, to all of a sudden thinking, where's my next next job coming from? And you, But you do get used to kind of riding those peaks and troughs, don't you, of kind of a busy month and then a quiet month. And using those quieter months then... So rather than just sit, and I did this when I first started, I used to sit at my desk waiting, thinking I'm at work. I was like, well, no, I'm not. You're a bit <laughs> quieter. Go and do what you enjoy doing. 
and that was kind of then what got me you know back out walking and and out into the mountains that I love but it did take a long time to adjust it definitely did so I'd say that's that's kind of a low really you know being self-employed is hard work you know you don't have that support from an IT team or a HR team or whatever you know you're doing everything yourself it's a steep learning curve but I kind of relished in that flexibility and that discovery I've said you know I was really academic and I loved learning I loved learning about how to make websites and how to do various things and you talk about you know my blog highs and lows and that really is something that served its purpose at the time because it made me accountable for the other things that I wanted to do if I said right I'm going to go out I'm going to try and go walking a bit more in the mountains or I'm going to start cycling or whatever if I just said that I'd probably do it a couple of times and then it'd fizzle out but because I'd kind of put it on the internet to my massive global audience I thought you know everyone's going to be kind of coming back to me saying I haven't done this it did keep me going it made me kind of get out there and helped me to again the strap line was redressing the work-life balance and that's exactly what what I what I kind of aim to do. So do you think to have a form of purpose do you think that's important in your career change story? Yes I think it we we talked about it didn't we about when I got my little folding bike and cycled and that was like my little purpose at the time having that focus elsewhere to make you accountable you know I am going to cycle every day and I kind of made myself do it because and actually I'm a Yorkshireman and I'm really tight and I hated kind of paying for the parking in the town centre so I found a place I could park for free and cycle and even like worked out how long it would take me to kind of pay off my bike that's how sad I am but that was great and but having that focus and that purpose inadvertently gave me the headspace that I was looking for and I think that's what stopped me making the decision it was not having the headspace so anything you can do that yes either makes you accountable so that you can't back out uh, or that frees up that thinking uh, part of your brain is is a really powerful tool and in your experience so far what's the reality has freelancing given you the freedom that you wanted to spend more time in the mountains and perhaps more time with your family as well 100 percent I can't tell you the the difference it made. About a year after I started working in legal technology, I said I'd been kind of very focused. I was working quite hard, actually. Probably just as busy as I was when I was a lawyer, but it was on my terms, so it felt good. After about a year, I kind of got a few big projects out of the way and thought, right, you know what? I've not been out to the mountains for about five years now. And I I looked back through my kind of photos and thought, yeah, it was, was, you know, five years ago I went up Blancathra on a really horrible day. And... I thought, you know what, I really liked that when I was growing up. I'm going to go and give it a go. So I said, right, I'm going to go to the late street. I'm going to climb Base Brown. I don't even know why I chose Base Brown. It was just like a really random fell. But I think I thought, all right, I'll do that. And I'll go on to Great Gable. It'd be quite nice. You know, I've not not done those fells before. And because I'd not been out in such a long time, I realised that my skills had faded massively. And, you know, I looked at the weather forecast, but, like, I basically found one that I liked the look of or saw that it wasn't going to be very nice and just thought, oh, it's always wrong. I'll ignore that. Um, and then, like, you know, my boots were a bit old and, like, the, the grip had gone and my waterproof trousers weren't very waterproof. My first aid kit, like, all the plasters had disintegrated. But <laughs> I kind of thought, all right, I still know what I'm doing. You know, I, I did DV, I know what I'm doing. It'll be great. And I remember, like, going up and I arrived at Seathwaite and it was it was grim. It was raining. It was, like, kind of sideways rain that you get in the lakes. And there was mist. And I thought, it's all right. I know what I'm doing, you know. And I started walking up. And going up was fine. I got to, I did get to the top of Base Brown. And it was really, really windy. Quite a frightening place. 
And I realized then that it's t- you're not going to get to the top of Great Gable. You know, it's time to kind of turn back. And rather than being sensible and kind of looking at the map and realizing if I'd have just carried along the ridge, I would have got down to quite a nice path and been able to return that way. I decided to retrace my steps through the mist on this kind of pathless terrain. I remember getting onto this scree slope and I kind of vaguely knew where I was. I wasn't lost, but I couldn't find a way off this scree slope. Whichever way I tried to exit it, I ended up on these crags. And I guess I started to, to panic a bit. And I remember then slipping on, you know, in my rubbish boots. I remember slipping on this grass and kind of got a little cut on my hand. And of course, I had no plasters. And it, it was just a bit of a realisation. I remember kind of sitting down and having, you know, a bit of chocolate and uh, and a drink and, you know, pulling myself together. And then I looked and found a, a fence on the map and thought, well, hang on a minute. If somebody's been up here and built a fence or a wall, you know, there must have been humans up here before. I'm not the first person to be. So I kind of gingerly made my way down to this wall, followed it off and, and you know, got off the mountain in one piece. But actually, it was a bit of a, a wake up call to me and it shook me up a bit um, because I thought it could have gone really wrong. I had no phone reception. I hadn't really told anybody where I was going. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I just hadn't been as adventure smart as I could have been. And I remember kind of sitting there down by Derwent Water having a, a sandwich thinking, right, I'm going to kind of go back and just build myself up to these mountains again because I didn't not enjoy it um, but I realised I needed to kind of be a bit more delicate in my approach so that was when the blog started and I set myself the challenge of walking around all 18 lakes in the Lake District and that was great because it got me up there regularly once or twice a month or so and it kind of helped me discover or rediscover parts of the Lake District that I'd forgotten about and kind of get familiar with the geography but also upskill in kind of a safe environment you know I was walking around a lake as long as you kind of keep walking around you're going to get back to the start aren't you and for me the realization that you know you, you talk about has it given me the freedom I remember I was walking around Wastwater and I decided to do a slightly higher level route so I went up onto Wind Rig and Neilgill Head and I remember looking over Wasdale and, and all the kind of the big mountains out there you know Scorfell Pike and across the Pillar and Kirkfell and Great Gable And I remember just getting really emotional and thinking, this is where I want to be. This place is where I am happy. And that was when I decided that I wanted to be a mountain leader. And at the time, I was still doing lots of legal tech work. But because I had that flexibility, I thought, right, what can I do with that flexibility? I can come to the mountains. What can I do by coming to the mountains? Right, I could take other people into the mountains. That'd be brilliant. Oh, right, there's something I can do here. There's a job called Mountain Leader. Brilliant. And that, I think, again, was almost like the next chapter, which I never would have got to have done had I not been brave enough to take on the legal technology work. I love how, while you're talking about this really lovely, positive story, that the sun's coming out. (laughs) The sun's coming out. I'm being, like, harassed by a bee that kind of keeps landing on my knee and, like, buzzing around my head. But it is like, yeah, it it does feel, doesn't it, as if we're kind of transitioning into a time. I've also, if you looked, I've started becoming more animated. (laughs) And I'm, like, I'm leaning forward and, you know, using my hands, whereas before I was kind of a bit more closed. And I think, yeah psychologists would probably have a field day with me wouldn't they it's weird isn't it when you go, <laughs> when you go back in your mind to a time that you found difficult or challenging and you know like not very enjoyable because it does affect it's it can it can still affect you now can't it and how you feel and how you talk about it. it's almost sometimes like you don't want to go back there <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think i didn't realize at the time but i was really suffering with stress and anxiety and i think it, 
a lot of people don't like to talk about this, but I think it's important that we do um, because I think a lot of people are sharing those feelings. And I've realized as I've opened up more that people have, you know, experienced similar things and people who I didn't necessarily expect either. Um, so, but for me, it was, yeah, it was the realization that afterwards it kind of hit me and I had, you know, a relatively low period, you know, after I'd left legal practice where all those kind of historic stress and anxieties that had built up kind of landed on top of me and, and I struggled and, um, it really was again, coming back to the mountains that, that got me through that really. And, you know, have made me kind of feel comfortable talking and admitting uh, that that was something that, that affected me. Again, I think that's something I'd like to think it's getting better in, in the professions. But I suspect there are a lot of people who don't dare speak up about that for fear of um, for fear that it may you know harm their prospects and for promotion and things. Have you noticed a difference in your stress and anxiety levels, even though you're still you know, you're self-employed and you've put yourself under the pressure of doing a mountain leader assessment and going through the training for that. So has your anxiety and stress changed? Is it, has it lessened or is it just different? You know what? People ask me that all the time. <laughs> so it's a really good question. Um, people say, hang on, you suffer with stress and anxiety. You went to be self-employed. It's like really stressful. But again, it's about, maybe it's something to do with being in control of my of my day so yes if I'm being honest it, you know there are different stresses and anxieties aren't there of course there are I feel a lot better equipped to deal with these things now and that's something that I wasn't able to do before so I just let, let it build up on top of me and again I think you know we talk about the spiral of burnout and I think it just pushes you deeper and deeper into this spiral um, I recognize the signs now when I'm feeling stressed um, my wife has quite you know she sometimes says or she knows when i need to go up a mountain so like i remember there was an advert i think it was for snickers years ago and there was a guy and he was like being a real diva and his mates were like oh dave you're a real diva when you're hungry have a snickers you know that was the whole idea of it and i'm like that if i've not been to the mountains in like two weeks my wife just starts noticing that i'm just getting a bit more grumpy and like you know um, not engaging as much. He's like, Andy, you need to go up a mountain, go and do it. You know, it'll just improve life for everybody. And I do, and I come back and I'm like, this is brilliant. And I'm, and I'm kind of, you know, full of beans again. So it is really interesting. You know, yes, I think stress and anxiety is something that's always there. If you're that kind of person, it will um, always be with you. And people have said to me, you know, and I think it's probably true that it's only because you care, you want to do a good job. Um, you want to impress people that you put those kind of pressures on yourself. So, you, you know, you mentioned kind of mountain leader assessment. And it's one of those things that, yeah, in hindsight, I really enjoyed it. It was stressful at the time. It was tiring. Um, but because it was something I was passionate about and have worked hard towards, um, I really enjoyed it and kind of used the stress and anxiety that those types of, you know, assessment situations generate as my kind of fuel to uh, you know to drive me on and, and and my incentive to you know to do a good job and impress people with the knowledge that I'd uh, clearly clearly had and if you're thinking about like the whole process that you've been through from going out for those big walks and deciding this is how I want to spend my time I want to be a mountain leader to here now about a month in after doing your assessment and passing that 
which parts of that process have been the most challenging for you? So again, massive geek, love learning. I loved it all. I, I genuinely, like, I remember when I bought the hill walking book, which is kind of, you know, the, the extended syllabus, I guess, for, for, for mountain training courses. And I remember just devouring it cover to cover going, this is brilliant. You know, literally <laughs> every subject I loved. And I loved the the breadth of it. I loved learning about the environment. I loved the geology. I loved all the safety and the, you know, the, the improvised rescue stuff and river crossings, navigation. You know, all these elements of the syllabus I thought were, were fantastic. And again, you know, it made me feel alive. Um, which did I find the most challenging? We've all got our kind of little demons. And for me, it was micro-navigation. And it was really because I think when I was going out on my own in the hills, I could kind of, you know, get myself round in one piece. I could kind of vaguely knew where I was and I knew that if I followed this path, I could get here. Then I went on my mountain leader training course and it opened up this world of kind of navigation ninjas that I never knew existed. People that could kind of go onto a featureless plateau and tell you where they were to within, you know, a few metres using just a map and a compass. And I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away by this. I just didn't realise it was possible to do that. Um, and once I kind of realised the standard, I kind of set this as a challenge. Right, OK, you know, that, that's where I need to be, obviously. I'm going to do that. And really kind of focused on micro-navigation. And I think because of that, I put a bit too much pressure on myself with it. And, I, you know, I remember that was like my little my little demon going into the assessment. I was a bit worried about that because I wanted to impress so much on that. But I started overthinking it. And on day one, I'd had a really good day on the assessment, a nice little icebreaker in the morning and done a few navigation legs, which I was happy with. And then we'd done our rope work and kind of got that out of the way. And I was happy with that. Then we did a little navigation game. And I was told to navigate to a contour feature. And it was the first time I'd been on my own. We all went off in different directions for this game. And I think... I just started like analysing my brain, started wondering, I started analysing what I've been doing in the morning and like, you know, giving myself a bit of a pep talk. I thought, right, great, you know, I'm doing all right here. And then I kind of got halfway into my leg and realised I've not been counting my steps and I don't know where I am. And I've uh, and I just started to kind of have a bit of a wobble. And I think it was really the emotion of the adrenaline kind of draining and having settled into the assessment. I just went to pieces. I just remember going to my assessor and saying, look, I've had a bit of a wobble. Can I start again? And from there, I kind of pulled myself together and thought, stop overthinking this. Just do what you do, you know, which is, you know, every other week you're going off into the mountains and you've been in some really challenging situations and, you know, you've been absolutely fine. Just use the tools that have always worked for you. And that's all I did. I forgot about my strategy. So once I kind of, you know, pulled my socks up and, and started doing that, the rest of the assessment I really settled into and really enjoyed and once it came to kind of day three, which is when we went out on the expedition, I was loving it. It was like being on holiday. And actually, you saw it in, in all the uh, the candidates. We all started relaxing. And that was when people started performing really well because we were just doing what we do and enjoying a few days in the mountains. So, yes, it was definitely a challenge physically, um, mentally, you know, financially as well, uh, and also the time it takes. You know, you're driving up and down the country, visiting all these incredible places. Um, it does take up a lot of energy. So the you know the relief at being told you know you're a mountain leader was was great and made all of that um, that effort worthwhile. Did you celebrate it? 
I was too tired. <laughs> we, I mean, that sounds familiar. I did my <laughs> I did my assessment over kind of the the June, you know, the summer solstice. So it's like you know the longest day. So it didn't get dark until about eleven o'clock at night. So we went out for night nap at eleven o'clock and kind of got back at two. And of course, you know, you, your mind's buzzing and you need to wind down. So I didn't get to sleep till about three, half three. And then we were up at six because it was lighter, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, we didn't get much sleep. And it's very tiring kind of being on, uh, I mean, switched on all the time. Um, so I, I didn't celebrate. No, perhaps I need to. Perhaps this is my celebratory <laughs> walk coming out on kinder in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> and being sort of guided by someone else have a bit of a break it's pretty i said to sarah when i got here i said right the map's saying my bag sarah i'm not doing any navigation today um oh we've been... had the maps out though haven't <laughs> we, we have had the maps out yeah we uh, we've had to check where we are that's that's kinder for you though isn't it <laughs> that whole question of have we really walked that far <laughs> this is the thing when you get chatting you know when you're walking and chatting it's like oh my god how did we walk a whole kilometer without even noticing and why is having the mountain leader qualification actually important to you? Why not just go and spend time in the mountains? <laughs> Again, great, great question. Um, I think, yeah, two things there. I know, and, and you know, you know Sarah as a Hill and Moreland leader, you know how much effort goes into it. And I do too. And I think it's that measure, really, of being told you are good enough and that reassurance that you have meet, met a standard that's important to me and it's almost kind of a an assurance of quality I guess that you know people have been tested to a rigorous standard and it means I feel competent and confident to enough to deal with you know any situation that may um, may come up in the mountains uh, which they do you know the mountains are, are unpredictable places quite often um, and to me that's you know what underlies all of this isn't it it's, it's safety I feel confident now that I can keep not... You know, it's all right going out on your, on your own, isn't it? And, you know, falling over and cutting your hand with a rubbish first aid kit. That's fine. That just kind of becomes a good story to tell your mates. But when that's with other people, it's it's a completely different thing, isn't it? And to me, that kind of safety aspect and keeping people safe. So that's what it means to me. I'm very proud to have it. It's, you know, the certificate takes pride of place on my on my wall next to all my various other achievements. But, you know, this one, particularly because it, draws in you know a physical element a mental element again financial element a time element um and also a broad knowledge of lots of different areas um to me that's why it, it's so important why it's something i'm really proud to have done and why is it that you want to take other people out in the mountains because you know you could just do your um freelance work you could go and spend your spare time in the mountains. Why is it that you would want to invest your time in taking other people out in these environments? I want people to experience an ounce of the joy that I get from the mountains. We've talked about this a lot today, Sarah, as we've been walking. We've been trying to kind of quantify what it is about that feeling that we get when we're in these places. And you've talked about that connection you've got with with this environment here on kinder and in the peaks i get it in places like the lake district and i want people to i almost want to kind of share that 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 joy you know um and also to help people enjoy it safely i've seen a lot of people struggling in the work environment as we've talked about you know i was one of those i've got a lot of colleagues and peers and friends who are in the same 
same boat. And for me, it was the mountains that really helped me. And I think as well, we talk about lockdowns, we talk about, you know, home working, and people have realised that we need, as humans, that connection with nature. I don't even like saying connection with nature because that implies that we are separate from nature, but we're not. We are nature, aren't we? We are part of nature. We need it. We can't just have it as something that that's that's there. We need to connect and be involved with it. And I've seen how powerful that is. I've seen groups of people come out from all walks of life, you know, nothing else in common if they were walking down, you know, the high street in London or whatever, but bring them out into the mountains and all of a sudden we are, we have this common ground and I see it time and time again, and I see people open up, and I see friendships formed, and that is a really powerful thing that I want to almost show off to people. So that's why I want to take people out, and not just me. I almost want to kind of, you know, grab people and say, "Look, look what's out there," and, and kind of share that, but be able to do it in a way. You know, there's a lot in the press, wasn't there, about people going off into the mountains unprepared and coming unstuck when the weather changes. I want to help people do it safely, enjoy it safely and empower them then to go on their own everyday adventures, which, as we've discussed, is so important for people's well-being. And as a leader, what do you think is unique about you and the experience that you're offering to people? I've kind of touched on it there, really, in that because I like to feel I've been in the position of a lot of people who are coming to the mountains for to seek solace. I like to think I can relate to that. And I like to think I'm quite perceptive in terms of people and, uh, and, and show a lot of empathy towards them and kind of really help them to not just enjoy a nice day in the mountains and get to the you know top of a hill or whatever, but also to take more from that experience and almost kind of apply that experience in their own lives. Um, so that's one element of it. I think the other element of it is I became frustrated with the status quo in my job as a solicitor, as I've mentioned. That was what really got me working in legal technology. And I guess those skills that I've picked up can be translated into what I'd like to do as a mountain leader as well. We were joking, weren't we, about traditional networking events and how I, you know, I cringe at the thought of going to these kind of drinks parties or drinks events where you'd kind of go and be in a busy room where it's really noisy and you'd be talking to people, making small talk about how busy you all are and you know what the weather's doing and just like really meaningless small talk. And you might get a few business cards or you know agree to connect on LinkedIn, but it goes no further. You can't remember anything else about that person. You don't know anything about their lives or what they do. There's no connection. And we as humans need that connection, don't we? And as I've said, I see people connecting in the mountains. I see people connecting in the outdoors. So I like to hope that I can offer that as an experience, really, for um, people who work in corporate environments, who are looking, you know, it's an important part of, of the job, isn't it? Networking, making connections, getting new clients, customers. But being able to do it in a, in, a, in a novel way, so coming out to places like this and forming meaningful relationships that you will then follow up on and that you will then share opportunities with, rather than thinking, oh, what was that person's name that I met at that 
breakfast seminar, which was the same as the three others I've been to this week. So that to me is 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 what I would like to bring. It's it's more than just being out in the mountains. I'm also, as you've seen, a massive geek when it comes to things like the environment and, and nature and you know just love kind of showing off what there is under people's feet how do you suddenly kind of go out there and you know do your mountain leader training do your assessment and are you going to go out and you're going to be this leader in front of groups you know even if they're small groups or like networking style walks how how has that sort of transition been for you so far? I truly believe that we're all meant to be in a particular place. And for me, it transpires that that place is in the mountains. That is where I feel most myself. I think the reality of running your own business is that there's a lot of things you've got to do in terms of admin. You've got to draft terms and conditions. You've got to you know, keep on top of invoices and, um, and finances. Sorry, a grouse is just uh, joining the conversation. <laughs> there's all that you know that element that there's kind of you know building your website and to me learning about those kind of things scratches that itch and I think maybe this goes back to the point I made right at the start which was I was quite an academic kid in that I just love learning and I love finding out new things about things and people and that's something I never really got to do in my professional life. Joy was kind of taken out of it, I guess. Whereas now I can do those academic things on my own terms and then come and be enthusiastic with people in my happy place. So I think it's quite a complex answer, isn't it? In that it's finding that sweet spot between all of those passions that we have. And, you know, people say, I'm passionate about things, but what are you really passionate about? It's not just one thing, is it? It's lots of different things. And I think that's the same for me. Just because I like mountains doesn't mean that's the only thing I like doing. For, for everybody, there is always something you can do to scratch those itches in terms of what your passions are. And I think because I've now got that freedom and that flexibility, I've had those immediate stresses, the things that really affected me and my confidence and my well-being taken away and managed... It allows me then to to concentrate uh, and and satisfy those needs and desires in another way. Do you think it sort of comes down to having different elements to your personality that maybe when you were in your job, because you didn't have much freedom and you're working those long hours, do you think they didn't really have much chance to kind of come out and, you know, be encouraged and evolved and... Do you think it comes down to sort of having different, exploring different elements of your personality and your identity and what you enjoy? Definitely. We joked when I turned up, so Sarah recognised me because I was the only idiot wearing bright yellow trousers and a kind of a green top. And I said, I think that's come from years of being made to wear kind of very, or dress very conservatively, you know, even down to our socks, you know, we had to wear black socks. And now I wear kind of really brightly coloured socks and I suspect that's that's part of it, isn't it? The other thing that I know I did and I did in hindsight really was I think you kind of play to the stereotypical view of what people expect a certain role to be like. Yeah. So you put your suit on, it's almost like your uniform and you act in a certain way. You stand differently. I, I find it now if I go to a wedding or, or whatever I and I put a suit on, I do all of a sudden stand very differently and... I think you you get quite good at at playing the role 
a lot of the time. And whether that is a, you know, as a, as a confidence thing to or to reassure people. But and again, yeah, it's probably the same in the mountains, isn't it? If I turn up wearing bright clothing, it tends to make people think, right, this is somebody who's kind of confident and spends a lot of time in the mountains, which which is obviously the um, the image that I want to portray. So, yes, I think it is about exploring elements of your personality and having the freedom to do that away from the constraints of what other people and society more generally expects of that particular pigeonhole role. So now it's your turn to ask a question, not to me, but to the people who are listening to this that will maybe help them to think creatively about making a cha- a positive change in their lives, whether it's to do with their career or yeah, just other decisions in life. So I'm quite excited about this bit because I've listened to other episodes in this in this series of podcasts and benefited from the questions that have been asked by the guests so I feel quite a lot of pressure to kind of come up with a good one because I've kind of agreed with with everything I'm like that was my question I really liked that one um so my question really is I'd like people to think about what they're prepared to compromise on and that sounds a bit of a strange question perhaps it needs a bit more explanation One example I like to give people is there were a lot of competing pressures when I worked in legal practice. Everybody nowadays wants things doing quickly, cheaply, and for it to be really good quality. So there's kind of those three things. So, you know, speed or time, cost and quality. And I used to do this as an example in training sessions with like juggling balls. Now it's not going to work very well on a podcast, isn't it? But imagine (laughs) I'm now juggling and I've got one of these balls. We're expected, aren't we, in our jobs in life to juggle those three things. My view was you could only ever pick two. So if you wanted something doing quickly and cheaply, then it probably wasn't going to be a very good quality. If you want something doing cheaply and, you know, really good job, probably going to take quite a long time. What's the last one? If you want something doing quickly and good quality, then it's not going to be cheap. So there's all these different kind of combinations and you need to decide where none of those is wrong. But I think you need to decide where on that kind of spectrum you're happy to compromise. And it's the same when it comes to career change. I don't think there is any such thing as the perfect career. And I've kind of come to realize that we're all seeking perfection, aren't we? Everybody wants the perfect life, the perfect job, etc., the perfect house, you know, when you go looking for a new house, you tend to have to compromise on something. It's really funny because the beauty of this, and I guess the follow-up question to it is, it never actually feels like a compromise anymore. I don't really feel I've had to compromise on anything. I am so much happier with my life now, despite people looking in from the outside thinking, well, you don't have this and you don't have that and you don't do this anymore. Um, But to me, they weren't the things that were making me happy. However nice those things may have been, they weren't making me happy. And I think that's what you need to do is work out what makes you happy, make those compromises, and then all of a sudden you'll find that they're not really compromises at all. You're just being you. Well, it has been so lovely to sit here with you and to to be looking out at this gorgeous view from the eastern side of Kinder. Thank you so much for sharing at least some aspects of your 
incredibly inspiring story. Thank you, Sarah. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've, I've listened to Sarah's podcast for, for a long time and uh, it, it's a real honour to be asked to, uh, to be sitting in the, uh, in the hot seat this time. So, so thank you. Thank you for listening to my show and to Andy for sharing his story. Take a look at admountainadventures.co.uk to see the guided walks that he's got planned. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please contact me through my website, abouttheadventure.com.